Welcome to Taking Notes with NextGen Venture Partners, where we have interesting conversations with entrepreneurs and innovators in the NextGen investing ecosystem. I'm your host, Dan Mindis. We hope you enjoy the discussion. My guest today is Kyle Garman. Kyle is a venture partner with NextGen, a senior vice president at SAP, and the author of a new book, which is the subject of today's conversation. The book is called The Entrepreneurial Mindset, and in it, Kyle talks about how to prepare today's children for the job market of the future. Kyle draws on his experience serving as a board member of the fantastic organization, the National Foundation for Teaching Entrepreneurship, generally known as NIFTY. And all proceeds of the book sales are going to NIFTY. I think Kyle has some really smart things to say in the book, but just as important as the book itself, Kyle is on something of a mission to actually spread these ideas to schools. Kyle has three kids, I have two, and for the sake of them and all the kids across the country, I'm rooting for Kyle to help usher in some change. Here's the conversation. Kyle Garman, thanks so much for joining me today. Dan, great to be here with you. So Kyle, I'm sitting at my desk at home in the COVID era with a book in my hand, physical book written on dead paper. It's called The Entrepreneurial Mindset. You wrote it. It's an Amazon bestseller now. This is probably the first book that I've, I've picked up in, in the last five years since moving to Kindle, but it's fascinating and exciting to have this in my hand. Tell us why you wrote the book. You know, Dan, and I appreciate you uh, uh, picking up your, your personally signed copy uh, of the book, which I know you have in front of you. Um, I, you know, I think this is, this is really a, a purpose-driven um, you know, uh, concept and initiative for me. Um, you know, I joined the board of this nonprofit called the Network for Teaching Entrepreneurship, which has reached about 1.2 million middle and high school students um, in the U.S. and around the world teaching project-based entrepreneurship and building the entrepreneurial mindset. And I, I really wanted to tell this story about um, this, the future of work and the role that the entrepreneurial mindset plays in that and how we can influence the mindsets of young people um, to set them up for this era of radical change, um, you know, what we call the future of work in, in the 21st century, which you and I, you know, live in on a day-to-day basis and, of course, have been accelerated a lot by COVID. So, you know, 100% of the proceeds from this book are donated uh, to, to NIFTY, N-F-T-E, NIFTY, that's the acronym we use. And so it's really a, a purpose-driven initiative. I got three kids as well, you know, uh, that are in the sort of middle school range, um, and that was a factor. So, but it was, it, fundamentally, this is about um, really helping young people and help prepare them for the future of work in the context of this this nonprofit that I, I'm on the board of, of called called the Network for Teaching Entrepreneurship. So, so, what is the entrepreneurial mindset? So, the entrepreneurial mindset has eight domains, um, and you know, I'll, I'll run through them really quickly, um, and then you know, maybe we can drill into some if you'd like. But if you think about the best way to think about the entrepreneurial mindset is think about the process of building a business plan. Um, and so think about it as a process flow. So at the, at the first level, you've got um, uh, ideation. And so the first two domains around there are uh, having a future orientation. So constantly examining trends and what's going on around you. Um, and then opportunity recognition. So the ability to recognize opportunities um, as, you're, as you're looking into you know, where the puck is going, if you will, if, if you're a hockey fan, for example. And the next two domains are domains are really about problem solving and, and solutioning to problems. So, so, so three and four are sort of critical thinking and problem solving, um, and really defining what what the problem is and how big is it and who's affected by it. And then creativity and innovation is the fourth domain, which is really around de- developing a creative solution to to a problem. And then the next uh, number five and six are really about how do you execute an idea. 
Um, and so we talk about um, initiative taking and self-reliance, so the ability, nobody's going to pick up the ball for you and run down the field. You've got to do that yourself. But at the same time, you, you've got to be able to build teams and you've got to be able to communicate and collaborate with lots of, lots of others to make an idea happen. So the seventh domain or the sixth domain rather is communication and collaboration. Um, and then the final two are really about overcoming obstacles. Um, because as you know, uh, you know, if you think like an entrepreneur, you're all inevitably going to face many, many obstacles. And so the seventh domain is flexibility and adaptability. So the ability to navigate and adjust as you as problems come up dynamically. And then the final domain is what we call comfort with risk, which is this ability to not only assess sort of risk and reward, but be comfortable that you're going to uh, uh, inevitably face uh, risk as you as you move an initiative forward and and sort of navigating that through. So in totality, those are the eight domains of, of what we call the entrepreneurial mindset. Um, and uh, I'll, I'll pause there, but th those are sort of, that's sort of the definition of what the entrepreneurial mindset is, the amalgamation of those eight domains. To me, that sounds fantastic. You know, you're preaching to the choir. Like you, I'm in the entrepreneurial world. I've got kids. I want them to have that mindset. So how do we go about you know, inculcating it? Yeah, I think it's a great question. So, I mean, at the beginning of the book, I really asked three questions. The first one we just answered, which is, you know, what kind of mindset is really required, you know, for this radical, profoundly different future of work in the 21st century? And so that's the entrepreneurial mindset. The second question I ask is, you know, what is the best way for young people to build this mindset? And I'll come to that in a second. The third question is, how do we scale this mindset development as broadly as possible? But to, to your question specifically of how you build it, well, the best way to build the entrepreneurial mindset, and I think you can start it at, you know, there's probably some logical lower limit from an age point of view, but um, we've demonstrated with, you know, 10, 11, 12, in middle school level, sixth grade, roughly, um, students are very ready for this, is through project-based entrepreneurship education. And it is exactly what it says it is. It's the idea that a student takes an idea, it's their idea, not the teacher's idea, it's their idea, and they are effectively building a business plan where the teacher serves as the coach. And then they've got a network of mentors that are surrounding them to help them build the business plan. And the, the teachers involved in that and, and others get involved in this sort of mentorship uh, process. So you learn to uh, learn like an entrepreneur through a mentor, uh, a network of mentors. And then you're competing in a competition. And there's competitions at a local level, regional level, and a national level. And so this concept of project-based entrepreneurship, those are sort of the three dimensions or four dimensions, I should say. you got the curriculum, which is effectively building a business plan. And then you've got the teacher serving as the coach, you've got mentors, and then you've got this fourth element called the competition. And, and my argument in the book is that is the best way, this, this learning method is the single best way, what I call in the book, the quintessential learning method for preparing young people for the future of work and for developing this entrepreneurial mindset. Yeah, one of the ways you describe preparing people for the future of work, a phrase that I liked in the book was, uh, you're robot-proofing yourself. And I think that's something that's going to be increasingly important, especially as you know something that both of us have been watching closely and investing in artificial intelligence companies. So Nifty's programs, for sure, help inculcate that entrepreneurial mindset. And, and perhaps there should be, right next to biology and history and, and math, there should be the sort of nifty course in schools. What other changes would you like to see beyond the sort of the nifty program adopted more broadly? Well, I think the first way I would say is, and I, I talk a lot about this in chapter three of the book, which is sort of taking a step back. And my answer to your question will be informed by 
the design principles of K through 12 education at their origin. So you've got Horace Mann, who's known as the father of public schools. He brought the Prussian factory model for education over to the United States. And at, at its core is designed to create factory workers. And, you know, it's designed to create convergent thinkers. And, and by convergent thinking, I mean getting to the right answer. And so really the entire paradigm for the last few centuries of K through 12 education has been based on this premise of convergent thinking. That is primarily what we do. We teach students information and they, I'll use the word, regurgitate it on a test. And as you, as we know, and as you get into the real world, the real world operates fundamentally differently than that. The, the real world requires, and increasingly with automation and many other trends in the gig economy, et cetera, it requires divergent thinking, which is defined as the ability to imagine new possibilities, imagine new scenarios, um, that are disregarding pre-existing structures. And so to answer your question specifically, what, what I believe at, the, at underpinning the, the entrepreneurship education experience is project-based learning. And it flips the paradigm by, uh, by making it a project. Um, the student then actually admires what the real world looks like because the student is taking something from end to end and completing it. So the, the, more, the, the changes I would like to see in addition to from entrepreneurship education is I think this, this, this move of a project-based learning that can be applied to any subject, you math, science, biology, you know, English. So it's this ability for the student to think creatively and imagine new scenarios and then take a project from end to end. So I think it's this idea of broadly speaking, project-based learning um, taking off in, in the school system would be one, one change I would, I would like to see, Dan. And when you say that, it certainly resonates with me. I'm curious if you've gotten pushback. What criticism, if any, or skepticism have you received? You know, it's, it's a great question. I would say that the biggest barrier is um, that there's not many people that think about, um, well, first of all, the biggest barrier is that you've got this system, this educational system that is A, been around for centuries and B, is highly decentralized. I mean, it is the most, edu most decentralized educational system in the industrialized world, and it's not even close. And so, you know, one of the things that I, I the, the, the barrier, the pushback is, is that there's, there's a lack of of, of, of understanding about um, entrepreneurship education, its benefits and project-based learning because the system sort of is what it is. And you know, one of the things I'm working on now is, you know, there's about 100,000 school board members in the US that oversee about 30,000 what I call local units of change in the United States. Um, and they're the school board members that are effectively empowered to make curriculum changes. And you've got superintendents and you've got state bodies like state boards of education and so on and so forth. But what I'm working on right now is, is just educating people on the, of why the future work is so much different and why we need a new paradigm for education and how we actually have proven learning methods backed by 1.2 million students that can actually make this change happen. So the barrier really is you know, getting into the mindsets of people that are empowered to make decisions, understanding the, the future of work, and then, um, you know, getting them to make a decision. So for anybody listening, I am actively looking for a million dollar donation to Nifty uh, that would include writing the foreword uh, for the hardcover edition of the book, which will be launched next year. And that will include the sh book being shipped to physically shipped to these 100,000 school board members in the United States. Um, so that we can actually make some uh, meaningful change. So for any entrepreneurs, particularly those who have been really successful and looking to uh, build their legacy and have a real impact, uh, that's that's sort of the next uh, next phase I'm working on here, Dan. 
I like it. I like the call to action. I like also learning what the margins are on actual book production, uh, <laughs> uh, shipping and sale. I assume there's an implication in terms of the dollars there. Kyle, you mentioned proof that the Nifty model has sort of proven out this hypothesis. Talk about the results. Yeah, I, I think there's a number of ways to you know measure this or think about the results. So, I mean, the, the first and most easily understandable or easily accessible one is the, the, what you see when a student, you know, if you, if you look at a student from the beginning of the process to the time when they present their business plan in front of a competition, particularly those that get to the regional or national finals, many of these students were shy, had never done public speak, speaking before. And so you just very simple concept of building the self-confidence to be entirely fearful of presenting in public to putting all this rigor and spending hundreds of hours practicing their business plan and then presenting it to a judge of, 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 uh, of, of uh, onlookers or, or you know, judge, uh, business people, whatever. So, so that's, you, you see that in, 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 you know, you can see that very, very readily. Um, you see it in the classroom as well. The classroom environment, the energy level is just fundamentally different because students are building their idea. They're not uh, taking in a prescribed curriculum, curriculum that somebody else said they should learn. And so when you flip that around, you start to see this sort of energy level. And the other thing we do is we've, we've created this measurement system, what we call the Entrepreneurial Mindset Index. And it's powered by Qualtrics, which is um, a company that, that I know quite well. Um, and, and basically what it does is it takes a snapshot of a student. So you think of it as what we call their internal locus of control, which is a fancy way of saying self-confidence. And it measures along these eight domains of the Entrepreneurial Mindset, it measures their internal locus of control through a series of, of, of you know, sort of Likert scale questions that they do. And so you look at these, you get a snapshot of their self-confidence, if you will, and then you get a snapshot of their self-confidence after they go through the program. And you see this dramatic trend where they've really improved upon, you know, these eight domains. So there's a measurable way, um, you know, through this entrepreneur mindset index where we see impact, we see impact in the, in the competitions and we see impact in the classroom. So those are three examples of, of, the, of the results we're getting. And I guess the fourth dimension would be, we see people go on, you know, to be highly successful, whether they're entrepreneurs and, or their private sector or public sector. You know, we've got a, a wide array of alumni. Some of them have built unicorn, gone on to build unicorns, and these are you know kids that came from you know inner city areas with with not much investment in their education, uh, frankly, compared to other other areas. And you know some of them have gone on to build unicorns. So we we also see the success of our students as they go forward in life. We talked a little bit about the challenges of kind of getting the word of it out. What about challenges with with individual students? Do you have advice for teachers or for parents where the kids might not immediately take to this project-based learning or, or, you know, starting their own business? Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, there's there, the, the parent dimension. I, I'll start there. Um, if you think about, you know, it, it, I talk about the computer science for all movement, which was announced by, you know, President Obama at the White House in 2016. Um, and it was this idea that, Every student should learn to code because the 21st century requires that. You may not be a coder in your profession, but you need to understand the language of coding. 15 years ago, if you surveyed parents, or maybe 20, um, you know, about 10% of parents said, yeah, I want my kids to learn coding. And through this initiative called Computer Science for All, which was driven by the White House, but has about 1,000 com uh, companies or public sector, private sector entities. Microsoft is a big champion of this, code.org, et cetera. You survey parents now, nine out of 10 parents say that they want their kids to learn coding. So it's become pervasive. And this whole movement of, of, of computer science for all, it's not 100% penetrated. It's probably more like 50%, but that's up from 5 or 10% just a few, few years ago. Um, and so I think, it, it, you know, it's, it's the, the resistance is, you know, again, this sort of lack of awareness. But 
one of the goals is for parents to understand the power of this learning method to empower their um, their their young their own their children or empower their students if they're a teacher. So so that's sort of uh, you know I guess one dimension. I mean honestly we don't see a lot of resistance in the classroom. I mean I, I there's there's always examples, but I would say the, the the in general when you tell a student we're gonna we're gonna start with your idea and you pick whatever idea you want. If you like video games, if that's what you care about. You build a plan around video games. You know, if you like to ride horses, you know, or if you like to paint, or if you like athletics. I mean, so you you don't see a lot of resistance at the student level because you're you know you're you're flipping the paradigm. So you're starting with what they are automatically interested in, and you're building a business plan from there. So we 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 actually for that reason we don't see a lot of resistance at the student level. It's more just getting the the word out uh, to for schools to, to adopt this um, adopt this capability. That's that's the biggest challenge. Kyle, you've been working on this book for at least a year now. It predates COVID, but you mentioned at the outset that COVID has accelerated some of the trends with respect to the future of work that you've talked about in the book and you've been talking about even even before you published. Talk about COVID. Talk about how this approach plays into our lives today. Yeah, I mean, first of all, we made a decision as an organization about five years ago to digitize our our entire learning experience. And so, you know, this is actually an opportunity for us to scale, and we're actively doing this to create the entire experience virtual. So it's a, it, you know, just to be very clear, this is a learning method and experience that can be done entirely virtually. There are, of course, benefits to being in person that we're we're missing in some um, in some cases. But I think COVID has effectively brought five or ten years of digital transformation forward, and many of the trends that we forecast. It just it happened a lot faster. Um, and I think what, what I argue in the book is that this, this radical pace of change, and COVID has just added fuel to the fire, is, is sort of um, recalibrating what learning, uh, learning methods and educational experiences and skills are necessary for the future of work. So if you look at the World Economic Forum or LinkedIn, they rank sort of skills. And you see this really dramatic move to things like creativity and innovation deriving uh, coming, rising to the top of the list. Whereas before, you know, five, 10 years ago, it was more, you know, hard skills were, um, you know, more in demand. And so, you know, this is really a key point. You mentioned robot proof, uh, you know, before that, you know, as robots take on more and more of this convergent thinking, because fundamentally, and this is an argument I make in the book as well, you know, intelligent machines are fundamentally better than humans at convergent thinking. And so if we have an educational system that is designed entirely or almost entirely around convergent thinking, we're, we're not preparing people for this radical pace of automation. And it's really these right brain skills that are so valuable, this creativity, this innovation, this ability to be risk tolerant, flexibility and adaptability and communicating and collaborating with human beings. Um, you know, these are the skills that are much more difficult for intelligent machines to automate. And so I think COVID has just fast forwarded everything five years. And so we're seeing a lot of people out of work, which we projected. I think it's going to continue. I think the unfortunate part about this is I think we're going to continue to see this bifurcation where a lot of people are going to continue to be out of work. And, and so, you know, it's a much harder problem to reskill people in their 30s, 40s, 50s. I and mean, we absolutely need to do that. And we are doing that. Um, but my argument is that we need to start earlier because it requires a different kind of mindset. It requires a mindset that says, I expect to continuously reinvent myself and reimagine and, and update my skills. And I, I can't just write out a skill for the entirety of my career or even for five or 10 years. I have to have this mindset of continuous innovation. And so this is why I'm so passionate about starting early because I think that if you can teach 12, 13, 15, 18 year olds 
this sort of mindset that they're going to need, that's you, you can have a much bigger impact at that age so that they know what to expect and they're actually prepared with a mindset for this era of radical disruption. I, I think otherwise you get into this cycle of skilling and reskilling, skilling and reskilling. And you know the, the skills that people learn three years are going to be automated. Um, and so it really requires a different kind of mindset. I mean, that's really the fundamental argument in the book. Al Garman, thanks so much for talking with me today. Dan, hey, thank you so much for having me. Really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Taking Notes with Next Gen Venture Partners. We hope you enjoyed the discussion. To learn more about us or to hear all of our past podcasts, please go to nextgenvp.com. And now for some important disclaimers. The information contained in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer to sell or a solicitation of an offer to purchase any securities. Past performance is not indicative of future results. Any performance or projections contained herein may be significantly affected by future events. Any opinions, assumptions, assessments, statements, or the like regarding future events or which are forward-looking constitute only subjective views and beliefs, should not be relied on, and are subject to change due to a variety of factors, including fluctuating market conditions and economic factors.